Well, good morning. I'm Brand Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. I am, in fact, Brand Barrett. I was, I'm in disguise this morning. Uh, I was assured by one person in the church, though, that I still look professional, assuming that being a lumberjack is actually a profession. <laughs> it's good to be loved. Well, good morning and happy new year to you. Um, welcome. We're going to be in the book of Revelation this morning. In fact, we're finishing up our series in Revelation. This was an Advent series, but we were snowed out last week, so we're not able to finish that. And now, thankfully, I've, the text that we're looking at this morning uh, certainly worked well in that series, but also has a lot to say to us this morning as we're getting ready to begin or have begun a, a new year now. So we'll be in Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse 9, and reading through chapter 22, verse 5. One other uh, thing by way of announcement. Uh, first, I also wanted to um, uh, let, let you know that as of January 1st, I've Philip Forgett, one of our deacons and the chair of our diaconate, is going on sabbatical for a year, and we are very thankful for uh, for all of Philip's um, labor on our behalf, and we, we wish him good rest. So when, when you see Philip out in the commons, don't ask him any questions, don't ask him to do anything. He's supposed to be only resting this next year, so thank you to you, Philip. Uh, it's... Some of you are at the point in life where you're either young enough to do this or, or older but still optimistic and you make resolutions about things that are going to change for you in uh, the course of a new year. Maybe you made some New Year's resolutions for 2011. Uh, you know, the things that we're going to fix this year, the things that we're going to do with our lives this year, uh, the things that we're going to get right this year, maybe the pounds that we're going to lose or the books that we're going to read or the projects that we're going to undertake. Well, this passage has something to speak to us as we go into the new year. A reminder, though, not of what we're going to accomplish this year, not about what we're going to be able to pull off and what we're able to do. But this text speaks to us about what God is going to do, what God is ultimately going to do with our lives in in his good timing. So as we get ready to look at this text, let's, let's pray together. Pray with me. Father, as we come to you on this new year, we do pray. Um, the prayer that we can pray confidently, that you would speak to us. For this is your word, uh, and we need to hear it again and again and again. We are people who live based on your word spoken into our lives. We pray as we come, some of us expectant, you would meet us. You'd be our encouragement and our strength. For some of us coming in, um, maybe bewildered and maybe feeling lost and maybe feeling the weight of a new year, would you minister to us? Wherever we are, we come to you, our Father, the God of all joy, the God who knows and has experienced our sorrow, and above all, the God of all hope. So we pray to you in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. So we come to this text in Revelation, as any text in Revelation, we need to come not only with our eyes open and our minds turned on, but with our imaginations at full tilt. Uh, because this is a book full of images and imagery. It's meant to be that way. It's meant to speak to us in, in colorful and loud images that are, that are meant to come in and do something. So this morning, for us to get what is here, we're going to have to have our imaginations turned on as we read about a city. So let me read for us, beginning Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates. 
And at the gates, twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke to me, who spoke with me, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jessanth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass." And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations." But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for His glory. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I uh, uh, came across an article in USA Today, an interview with Gwyneth Paltrow, and in it she was speaking about um, conversations that she has with her six-and-a-half-year-old daughter and kind of the depth of the questions her daughter's beginning to ask. So let me, let me read from this article. It said, Paltrow considers herself a spiritually inclined person and says her children inspire her to take stock of her beliefs. My daughter asked me these big questions like, where is Brucey, Paltrow's late father, Bruce? And is there a heaven, and where do you go when you die? She says, she's six and a half going on 88. She's so deep. Just the other night, she was asking me about that, and I said, I I can tell you what I believe. I hope that he's in another dimension somewhere and that the spirit lives on. But the truth is that I don't really know. And she was like, well, you should look it up on the Internet. As we, even this year, come with some of those questions, some of those longings of a heart, where do we go? Well, we come to Scripture. And this morning we come to this place in Scripture that speaks of this question about heaven, and let me put it differently, about our home, about our true home. 
It tells us a picture of heaven actually come to earth as the city of God, this new Jerusalem, where God comes and dwells with his people. And scripture tells us this is our destiny. This is our future, that our home, our true home is going to come. It's going to come here. And so as we look at this, the starting point for us is simply this. We all long for home. We all do. And maybe that's been front and center for you over the holiday season. For some people, maybe you grew up in a home that was warm and inviting, a place of security and rest. And so when the holidays come around, you you long to be with your extended family because it's that taste of home again that is so good. Or maybe uh, you're growing up and your experience of home have, have not been nearly that bright. And so the holidays were a season of disappointment or frustration or discouragement. But even in that discouragement, you know that when you think this thought, this is, this is not the way home is meant to be, you think that thought because you do have a picture somewhere of a home that is meant to be. That even in our disappointment, it's rubbing shoulders with our expectations, our hopes, our dreams. And Scripture says there is a home for us, the right home for us, the ultimate home for us. And it's coming, and this passage talks to us about that home. Let me give us just a working definition of home to use this morning. Simply this, that home is the context of our flourishing. The context of our flourishing. Home is a place. It is a place where we are meant to know life in its fullness. But home is also a network of relationships with other people that we are tied to that are meant to flourish as well. Then when we long for home, we long for the whole picture of that. The context of a life that is really meant to shine, to sparkle, to flourish. And so we come to a passage like this this morning, uh, we're to think about these things, and we're supposed to chew on them. And that's, that's really going to be much what the application is, to, to think about this. Paul in Philippians says that whatever is beautiful, whatever is true, whatever is worthy, to think about these things, that there's something transformative for us. As we think about the picture of what God has given us, even here, a picture of heaven come to earth. Uh, There's a 17th century English Puritan named Richard Baxter who began to write for himself uh, his funeral sermon, uh, which turned into a book called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. And in that book, he tells us as believers that we should meditate on heaven for 30 minutes a day. And for many of us and most of us, maybe not even, even 30 minutes a year. But that's what we get to do this morning, to look at this picture of heaven and to be still a while. Uh, Paul Tripp, uh, author and counselor, who I'll be quoting later on as well, uh, he, he tells a story about having a friend who was a rose gardener. So he had this uh, incredible rose garden. He spent you know, hours upon hours trimming the roses, ma- making sure the, you know, the soil was just right, I don't know, playing classical music, whatever you have to do to make roses grow. He, was, he, he poured his life into this, and he said, he was telling uh, this guy, Paul Tripp, the writer, that one day that he said, I, I realized that I never stop and actually enjoy the roses in my garden. So he said that he went out one day and he sat down in front of one of the rose bushes and sat there and looked at it for three hours. And Tripp said to him, didn't didn't you just get bored out of your mind? And he he said, no, I was was absolutely transfixed as I stopped and and looked and, and saw those bushes as I'd never had before. I feel like I've never seen a rose before. Until I spent those three hours that something changed in him as he took a long, hard look and pondered. And that's what we're called to do. And that's what Baxter recommends that we do with heaven. And that's what this passage calls us to this morning. So we get in this passage this picture of this heaven, this home to which we are going. 
and it is marked by a lot. There's so much in this passage. We're going to look at five things that mark this picture of heaven that we have. It's beauty. It's peace. It's life. It's light. And the presence of God. That those five things mark this. Uh, first, the beauty of this. Look at me in verse 9. Look with me in verse 9. It talks about heaven coming down, uh, adorned as a, a bride, as the wife of the Lamb. And if you may remember earlier in Revelation, the bride is compared to God's people. And here the bride is pictured as the place of God's dwelling with His people. And you get this picture of this bride in, in all her splendor, in all her beauty, looking at her very best on this day where she is to shine. That's how we open up thinking about this new heavens and new earth. It is a place of incredible beauty. And part of the beauty of this is, is not just that picture of the bride, but it's the, the scale of the beauty here, the enormity of this city that's pictured for us. Uh, when I was in college, I took a couple art history classes, as some of you may have. And one of my, one of my favorite artists uh, was, from, um, the, uh, was from the 15th century from the Netherlands. And he painted, uh, his name's Roger van der Weyden, and, and he painted many things, but one of which was a, a picture of the crucifixion. And if you've ever had an art history class or just opened an, an art book and looked at the, the color plates in the art book and seen just the beauty of some of the artwork, uh, it, it's another thing entirely, though, to go stand in the, in the presence of the piece of art itself. I, I admired this artist. And then Elizabeth and I were living in Philadelphia, and we were wandering through the uh, art museum in Philadelphia and came to this one gallery. And at the end of it was this painting, the crucifixion, that I didn't even know was in Philadelphia. And as I walked up to it, it was mounted probably five or six feet feet off the ground. And the painting itself was six feet tall and six feet wide. And when I looked at that little picture in the book, I had no idea of the enormous scale of it. And I was just in awe. Maybe you've had that sense before of coming before a piece of art or something beautiful. And you're just simply in awe of it, the scale, the grandeur of it. Well, look at the scale and the grandeur of what is pictured for us here. This city of God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. Uh, we, we're given the dimensions. And helpfully here, we're, we're told that, uh, that the dimensions that John were, was using are the same dimensions that angels use. So if you wonder what they use to measure, they do, in fact, use stadia and do use... Uh, uh, the measurements that we get right here. So here's what happens when he looks and he measures. What does he see? He says this angel measures the city of God for him, and it is 12,000 stadia. goes on to say there that the, um, the, the length, the width, and the height are all the same. Okay? It doesn't say if that's a 12,000 stadia is length plus width plus height or if it's each measurement is that. But let me just say this. If, if it's that each measurement is 12,000 stadia, that's, that's about 1,300. Um, that totals about 1,300 miles. And so if that's the case, then it's about 1,300 miles by 1,300 miles, which is about four times the state of Texas. And I tell you that simply to say that the picture we get here of the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven for us, it is enormous, which means that there is room. There's room. There is room for us and not only us. I can only imagine that maybe there is one corner of this enormous city and there are a couple city blocks that are set aside just especially for people who grew up in the PCA. It's our denominations. <laughs> corner of the city, but we still have most of the uh, western half of the United States to fill up. 
You know, you read in Scripture often, especially in the prophets, it speaks about the remnant of God's people. As God's people have gone apostate, and there is just one small handful of God's people from which God will rebuild a people who love him. Well, once you get to the New Testament, by and large, the language of the remnant is cast aside as we see the church explode starting on the day of Pentecost and begin to grow and grow and grow. And we get a picture here of heaven that will be filled with people worshiping God, hundreds and thousands and millions and perhaps billions of people. That is where we are going. Heaven is expansive, just as God's grace is expansive. And we will be there, the beauty and the majesty, the grandeur of the scale Artists will also tell you that symmetry is an important part of the way we perceive beauty. And it is a symmetrical city. There are 12 gates. There are three on each side. Number 12 in, here in this passage representing uh, the, the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. And then we're going to see that there are 12 foundations to the wall representing the 12 apostles. The unity of the Old Testament and the New Testament of the message of grace. Of the completeness of it. There are these 12 gates around the city. And it says here, interestingly, that the length, the width, and the height of the city are the same, that they're the same dimension, that it is, in fact, a cube, which makes no sense to us, but would have made plenty of sense uh, to God's Old Testament people, because they knew of another important cube, and it was the central room in the temple, the Holy of Holies, where the high priest went only once a year to offer um, Sacrifice for the forgiveness of the people. It was a cube, and it was the very heart of the temple where God's presence dwelled. And what's John telling us here? What's this picture we get of heaven? It is the Holy of Holies blown up, exploded into unbelievable size because everywhere will be infused with the presence of God. No more behind thick curtains, no more in a special room for only one man a year. We will dwell in the presence of God. We'll see more of that in a moment. It's symmetry, it's scale, it's beautiful. Look what it's made out of. Precious stones, precious gems, this gold beyond imagining. Uh, the stones remind us of the high priest in Israel in the Old Testament. He would wear a, um, an apron that had 12 stones in it that, one, that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And here we have these 12 stones that now become the foundation of the city. But just imagine, here's the imagination. I mean, just picture this. This enormous city, streets and everything of this transparent gold, of these incredible stones, the unbelievable riches and beauty of this place. And each of these uh, gates that go into the city carved from a single enormous pearl. It is a picture uh, beyond our ability to even take in of richness and magnificence, of treasure, in fact. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about treasure, he said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we have this picture of this eternal home of ours that is vastly greater than any of the treasures, the other treasures that capture our hearts so easily and so often. We have that picture of beauty, of a city to which we are traveling. That means, among other things, that the, the longings of our heart, the longings of your heart and mine for beauty and majesty, 
longings of your heart, those things that pull at you uh, in an amazing sunset and a day in the mountains, uh, standing before a beautiful work of art, listening to music that has stirred your soul, that those longings point us to this, and we will come and say, this is what I was searching for all along. This is what whispered to me in the beauty of this earth. When I would get tastes of it, but never quite enough, it was pointing me here to this beauty, this city, where we will be with God forever. It is a city of incredible beauty. The second thing is a city, it's a city of peace. And part of peace and feeling that peace is to feel secure. Well, a first century picture of what does a secure city look like means that it is going to have walls that can keep out any intruder. It says here that the city walls are 144 cubits uh, thick. They are over 200 feet thick and enormous. Nothing could possibly penetrate them. In fact, we've already seen in Revelation that God says he has already at this point even taken away every enemy that we will ever have. Everywhere you look in this picture in Revelation, there are these reassurances of we are at peace. We are safe. We are secure. There are 12 gates into the city, and we're told here in Revelation that those gates will never be shut. Why? Because there's no more threat. Because there's no more danger. We have been set free. The peace that he speaks of here is peace and security on an international scale. Look at the way he speaks of the nations. Verse 24, it says, the nations will come to the new Jerusalem. They will walk in the light of God. The kings of the world will bring to the city their glory, their treasure. Verse 26, bringing the glory and honor of the nations. You hear what he's saying? There is international healing as well. There is no more war. That there is no more strife between countries and nations and people groups anymore. That all of that has been healed. How? We'll get another picture. Verse 2, chapter 22. The tree of life there. And what does it say about the tree? The leaves are for the healing of the nations. That finally those things have been healed and brought to peace. How? Well, again, who is the source even of these leaves for the healing of the nations. It is the presence of the Lamb, of Jesus on the throne, the one prophesied in Isaiah 9 that we read around Christmas time. For every, brute, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. One day that peace is going to come and it will reign. This new Jerusalem is marked by peace and security, the end of our fears. I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, one of my sons, uh, the next day, the, uh, one morning was telling me that, that he'd been having nightmares the night before and he was scared and I was asking him why, what he dreamed of, and he said that he was dreaming of monster trucks, one of which he got for Christmas. Um, <laughs> And so as we talked about this, it's one of those times your children re actually respond to reasoning and logic. I didn't have anything else in my bag, so I'm glad it worked. But I said, you know, okay, now can a monster truck fit through the front door of our house? No, Daddy. You're right. So could a monster truck come get you in the middle of the night? No. And he somehow magically felt better. Um, <laughs> here in the New Jerusalem, what do we get? A picture of these walls, of this kind of security, of a world made peaceful so that nothing that could harm us could get through those gates and nothing that could harm us even exists any longer. That healing and peace has been brought. And let me ask us this. What are you scared of 
still. What's at war with you? Where does the fear come? Where does the struggle come? We're reminded here to look to our home. Because the day is coming when we will be safe and we will be secure. And our God will bring us there, though through many trials. This city is marked by beauty and peace. It's also marked by life. And we get two pictures, two images of that here. One is this picture of a, of a river in verse 1 of chapter 22. It says that it's flowing from the throne, this, this river of life. And John is borrowing imagery from Ezekiel, where Ezekiel pictured the temple of God one day with this stream that comes out from the throne of God that begins as this little trickle and grows and grows until it is this mighty ocean that overtakes the world, this river of life. It's the river that Jesus had in mind. Um, in John chapter 4, when he had a conversation on a hot, dusty day with an outcast woman at a well, when he asked for a drink, and they got into a theological conversation, and he said, you know, if you had asked me, uh, I would have given you water. I would have given you living water. He said this, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And here we see that water, this river flowing from the throne, the answer to our thirsty souls here in this city bringing us life. The, the river is one picture of life. The other is the tree, verse 2 of chapter 22. We read here of the tree of life that's on either side of this river. Maybe what's pictured here is the tree of life now, no longer a single tree, but a whole grove of trees lining this avenue going towards the throne, this tree of life, the tree that we, were, that we lost, from which we were barred in Genesis chapter 3. Remember when our first parents, Adam and Eve, took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what was the consequence? They were, they were separated from the tree of life, the tree that would have allowed them to live forever. They were cast out of the garden, but now, no longer cast out of the garden as happened at the very beginning of the Bible, but now welcomed in to a garden in the heart of a city where we are given free access to the tree of life. You see what it says about this tree? It bears fruit every month, 12 different kinds of fruit. It is amazingly bountiful. It provides for our every need. And there is no longer an angel with a flaming sword standing between us and it. One has taken that blow for us that we might have access here. Jesus has opened the door that we might be here and now take this fruit, that we might be fed, that we might drink from the river of life, that our hunger might be satisfied, that our souls might know the life-giving water that they crave. In this abundance of life, the city is a place of life. It's also a place of light. Do you see that? It's a city permeated by light. Verse 23, there's no more need of a sun or moon. It said the lamp at the center of the city is Jesus himself. The glory of God is the light of this city. See what he's saying here? This whole city, brighter than the moon, brighter than the sun. This light radiating through the city. The, uh, John's told us that the, the gold that's, that makes up this city is transparent as glass. Why? So that nothing will inhibit the light that radiates through here. The light that comes pouring through even the streets, that comes pouring through the walls, that reflects off the precious gems that make up the walls of this city. It would be dazzling beyond belief, and it would be too bright for us to look on yet. But one day our eyes will be able to bear that sight and see that beauty in this city of light. 
verse 5 of chapter 22 says that night will be no more. Why? Because night is where attack happens. Night is where um, our fears get us. Night is where we are undone. You know, who gets this best? Our children do. When they are scared of the dark. In those nights when my kids are scared of the dark and I come in and I turn on the little nightlight in the corner and those shadows begin to recede and our kids get a glimpse of hope again and they can fall asleep in security. Well, here we have a city not simply with a nightlight chasing away the shadows, but a city where there is no night, where light pervades everything. Because for us, the night does not win. Light does. Jesus said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in that light, all our fears melt away. Paul Tripp, I mentioned earlier, has a book called Shelter in the Storm. And in it, he, he has a poem that's a meditation on Psalm 27. One. I'm going to read that poem. But first, here is Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And here's his poem. In a world that is held in such deep darkness where the light of truth often seems more of a flicker than a flame. In a world where deceit, dishonesty, falsehood, and foolishness divert and distort the lives of so many. In times when a myriad voices say so much about so many things where confusion seems readily available and clarity seems hard to find. In a world where opinions rise to a place where only truth should be. And every voice seems to get an equal hearing. In the, the constant cacophony of 10,000 contradictory voices, it is a wonderful and amazing thing to be able to say with rest and confidence, The Lord is my light. My heart has been lit by the illuminating and protective glory of His powerful and transforming grace. My mind has been renewed by the luminescent presence of His truth-guiding Holy Spirit. My life has been guided down straight paths by the ever-shining lamp of His Word. I will not be afraid. But it is not because I am strong or wise. I am not afraid, but it is not because I have power or position. I am not afraid, but it is not because I have health or wealth. I am not afraid, but it is not because of my circumstances or relationships are easy. I am not afraid for one glorious reason. I have been lit by the Lord of light. In the darkness of this fallen world, I no longer walk in the night, but I have been given the light of life. I am not afraid because light lives in me. This one amazing reality gives me rest. I have been rescued from the darkness and transported into the light, and I am not afraid. This city will be a city of light. And then finally, these five things, the city is going to be marked by the very presence of God. We see that throughout the passage, that He is the glory of this city. It is His glory that radiates through here. It is God Himself and the Lamb who gives it its security, who gives it its beauty. All of these things find their center in God, on His throne, at the heart of this city. And it says that we will finally see His face. And in uh, the flow of Scripture, this is an expected but almost unbelievable because untasted reality. This beautiful promise that no one has tasted yet. In fact, it's the answer 
to the promise that was given to God's people back in Numbers chapter 6. You remember that. You and I hear it most Sundays. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. May you know God's face. In other words, may you look on the face of our God in His full glory. May you look on Him face to face. Moses asked for this. God, let me look on your face. Moses, who is called the friend of God, and God said, no one can look on my face and live. So he hid Moses in the side of a mountain and walked by and let him see his back. Isaiah is given this vision of heaven that, that just undoes him. He feels like he is coming apart at the seams, and he looks up, and he's not able to look any higher than the train of God's robe that flows off the throne. No look into God's eyes. The closest anyone gets to this is maybe Peter, James, and John in Mark chapter 9 in the transfiguration where they see something of Jesus' glory before them. But here we are promised in our eternal home we will see God face to face and we will not be destroyed. We will not be undone. But we will see Him as He is and we will be seen even as we are and are meant to be. It's what Paul said. Even now we see through a mirror darkly. One day we will see face to face and know fully, even as we are fully known. You know, this picture of heaven with its walls, its city, its gold, its jewels, highly symbolic in so many ways, but even the symbols of the Bible point us to deep reality. And what we see here is whatever the topography of heaven is going to look like, we are going to be in awe, in eternal awe of its beauty, of its security, its life, its light by the presence of God with whom we will spend eternity. And we are not home yet. Most days we know that. When we get those foretastes of heaven, when we get those tastes of home and life the way it's meant to be, we can be thankful and we can know that we are going to come to the full feast one day. In those days when home doesn't satisfy or even profoundly disappoints, we can be a people who are marked by incredible hope, unbreakable hope, and a home that is coming to us. And it is sure. And God will be good to His Word. And whatever this new year brings us, the good and the bad, we can hold on to this hope. It is the home for which we are made. It is the home which we will enjoy forever. Let's pray. Father, we do pray, uh, even as our imagination struggles to wrap itself around this, that you would open for us in our minds and our hearts the glory of heaven, that we might be people of incredible hope, not so that we might abandon our care for this world, but it would be infused with power now as we see where we are headed, as we know that you are alive and at work, and that one day you are going to bring healing to all that we see. So help us to live here in hope. Help us to live here with confidence. Help us in the midst of our fears as we look ahead and live in light of the future, even today. And we ask this in the name of our Savior Jesus.